0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series called The Lifestyle of the Gospel today, and Dr. is going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, with a message entitled, A Living Sacrifice.
1: I want to begin by reading our text, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, some time ago I met someone who told me why she was a vegetarian and she said, I don't want something or someone to die so that I can live. And I had to smile. That's because that's the very center of my faith. Someone had to die for me to live. Death must occur for life to occur in someone else. That's the heart of the gospel. You see, sacrifice is found everywhere in the Bible. Abel, the second generation of human beings, sacrificed the firstborn of his flock as a burnt offering to God. After the flood, the very first act Noah did, was to offer some of the clean animals on the ark as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Bible tells us that God was pleased. Abraham offered his own son on the altar, but God interrupted and provided a ram to be sacrificed in the place of his son. And by the time we come to the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, a great deal of that book is about instructions regarding animal sacrifice in worship. And if I might interject here, I mean, one of the reasons why, at times in history, people have sacrificed other human beings on an altar is that there's something in the human psyche that seems to understand that, that something needs to die so that I might live. Now, of course, human sacrifice is condemned by God, but it does reflect a basic human impulse— And when Christ became our sacrificial lamb, his one sacrifice announced the end for all other sacrifice. That's because his sacrifice was complete and final and nothing more needed to be added. He, by his one sacrifice, says Paul, was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is, his sacrifice has forever satisfied the righteous anger of God. His sacrifice It was the cause of the Father to look on Christ and not on our former sins. And we, in consequence, have peace with God. His sacrifice has ended the need for any more sacrifice. Well, if that's the case, and it is, then why does Paul begin his last section of Romans, the section I've entitled The Lifestyle of the Gospel, by calling us to present our bodies as a sacrifice? Well, whatever the reason, we know for certain that whatever sacrifice I make, well, it does not in any way add to my salvation. My salvation is complete on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. And having said that, let's see if we can follow Paul's train of thought. You know, although it doesn't appear that way in our English Bible, the word therefore is the very first word to appear in this passage. You know, Paul is saying on the basis of everything I've taught up till now. Let me now present to you the logical conclusion to what I've been teaching in Romans. On the basis of Christ's completed sacrifice, consider what I have to say. And next we notice that Paul adds, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. I'm appealing to you by or on the basis of the many mercies that you have received from God. Now, here we see the beginnings of the motivation to live in the way in which Christ wants us to live. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. So let's give an assignment. Number one, make a list of all the grace that you have received. And I don't mean here that that God helped you get into your house or get that new job or find the right spouse for you to marry or or something like that. No, no, I, I actually mean go through Romans 1 to 11 and make a list of every spiritual blessing you have received and then take your list and lay it out before God and say, thank you. And then add this, Lord, out of these overwhelming mercies, I owe you my life, nothing less. Now, after having completed that assignment, go to number two. Know that you must respond to such amazing mercy. You know, one day, Jesus was in the house of a Pharisee invited to eat, and and as he was reclining at the table, a, a notoriously sinful woman came into the house, and she had an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment. In the ancient world, this kind of a jar made of stone from the cliffs of Egypt and filled with very expensive ointment, well, it might have constituted a lifetime of savings. I mean, many people considered such a jar an investment, a savings account that would take you through old age. Well, this woman started to cry in Jesus' presence, and, and as she did, she's kneeling and holding on to Jesus' feet, and her tears are running down and dropping down on Jesus' feet. And she started to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she broke the jar and she poured that beautiful ointment on his feet. And the Pharisee was both shocked and appalled. And he made mention of the fact that this woman was a sinner. And This is how Jesus responded. And I'm I'm reading Luke 7, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, and this is important. I want to ask you how you view yourself. If you're overwhelmed by the enormity of your sin and and find yourself often moved to tears over the depths of the grace and mercy and the heights of the matchless love of Christ, you have the basis of a Christian lifestyle. But if you have not come there, and if you don't marvel that you even you have found mercy, well, you'll never live the Christian lifestyle. Of course, we do not respond to mercy by seeking to pay God back. Rather, we respond out of such gratitude that, that if anyone asks us, why are we making such a sacrifice for Christ? We answer, well, what else can I do? I was forgiven so much, the, the mercy was so great, and I'm seeking for a way to express my thankfulness for what I have received. You see, each of us will have to answer this question. You now, it's the question of self-identity. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an alcohol-soaked street beggar who's been invited into Buckingham Palace, standing before the queen in rags and looking out of place and amazed that you're there? Or do you see yourself as having been invited into a meeting of your peers? Which is it for you? Have you been forgiven much or little? The old Heidelberg Confession of Faith used to ask young Christians the following question. It asked, how many things are necessary for you to know that you in this comfort may live and die happily? And here's the answer. Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. The third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. And that's the secret of joyful and fulfilled living. Now, once you're motivated out of love and gratitude that is so great that it, that it must surely consume your life, well, then you're ready for the next step. See, if you, on the basis of His mercy to you, are, are filled and overflowing with thankfulness, the next step is to clearly understand your calling in life. You know that you have a calling. You know that there's something that you must do, that, that you exist for a purpose. And how important this is. Well, I'm afraid that some of us will still say, well, what are the rules of the Christian lifestyle? That's not the question. The real question is, what is my calling? Now look to the second half of verse one, which tells us how to respond to his mercy. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, And here's our language of sacrifice. And the word translated as to present is often used as a technical term for a priest placing or presenting an offering on the altar. In Romans 3, verse 25, Paul has already taught us that Jesus was put forward or presented as a propitiation or as a a wrath-bearing sacrifice. His body was laid on the altar of the cross, and that sacrifice accomplished what all the sacrifices of bulls and goats in the Old Testament simply could not accomplish. Look, we know that we can't die for the sins of another, but we, like Christ, must lay ourselves down. And that fits perfectly with Jesus' words in Luke 9, 23-25. You remember He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, the calling of the believer is, out of gratefulness or out of a spirit of overflowing response to mercy, we seek to express this abandoning of ourselves for the sake of Christ. But, and this is the key. What can this mean if I live in a country where my faith doesn't actually cost me a whole awful lot? I mean, no one's threatening to put me in prison. How then do I present my body as a living sacrifice? So you see, it's one thing to quote Romans chapter 12 verses one to two, but it's another thing to understand what it means, practically. If I am to lay my life down as a living sacrifice, how shall I define this?
0: Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld, laugh Gainesville Phil Calloway, special musical guest, Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus Paul David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's Royal Palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca
1: We're talking about a living sacrifice. What practically is demanded of those of us who seek to express our thankfulness to God? Well, it's about lifestyle. So let me give some examples. Let's say for an example, you have kids. You know, I'm one of those parents who believe that a career is very important, but what's more important, their career or their faith? Will you take as much time developing their love for Christ as their education? Or let's use another example. Let's say you hear that there are places where volunteers are needed to serve Christ. Well, what's more important, your free time or serving Christ? See, we don't need some dramatic call to missions to test this. I mean, this kind of stuff gets tested every day in our giving, in our serving, our going out of the way for each other, and our sharing the faith with one another. Now, again, please understand this is a calling. The motivation, as we've seen, is gratefulness. But there's more to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I want you to notice what we are to present as a living sacrifice. Paul says, our bodies— Now, why didn't Paul say, ourselves, or or why didn't he use the traditional evangelistic appeal which says, give your heart to Christ and invite Christ to be your all? Why present the body? Doesn't that sound external, like offering an external sacrifice while our heart may not be engaged? I mean, why this way of putting things? Well, the answer has everything to do with what Paul says about the body in the book of Romans. See, in Romans 6, verse 6, Paul speaks of our old self being crucified with Christ, and and hence we're freed from sin because our old self is dead, and, and a new self has been put in its place. And so he proclaims that we're dead to sin, but we're alive to God in verse 11. But in the very next verse, in verse 12, he says that since that's true, we are to take care not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Now, here Paul makes a contrast between the self, or we could say the soul, and the body. And in Romans 8, he promises the redemption of the body, and it's yet to come in the future. So while the soul is made new, the body awaits a future redemption. And in the meantime, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9:27, he disciplines his body. He, he keeps it under control. He's, he's determined that his soul will lead his body and not vice versa. That is, he will not allow his body to dictate to him. Rather, he will dictate to his body. To make this now plain, what Paul is saying is that the sacrifice of the body is the sacrifice of the self-serving devices of the body. Now, from Romans 12, verse 1, let's take it one step further. The body is, according to Paul, to be holy and acceptable. Now, those two words come to us from the sacrifices of the Old Testament, where an animal was offered in sacrifice, but it was to have no blemishes. It could never have a broken leg. It couldn't be diseased, disfigured, or somehow genetically inferior. You were to offer God only the best of your animals. Now, in Romans 12, that means when we present our body We present to God a body that is unblemished by sin. We keep the body from expressing its sinful desires. Let me get practical. In Romans 2, Paul lists some of the sins of the body. Tongues, he says there, practice deceit. Lips, he says, spread poison. Feet, he says, are swift to shed blood and seek revenge. Instead, we offer up our bodies in a new way. Tongues now speak truth with grace. Lips bring healing and well-being. Feet are swift to offer help. We discipline ourselves for this, for now we are instruments of Christ. Now, of course, the body was not made for sexual immorality, but for Christ. Unclean sexual activity is not the Christian lifestyle. So our calling is to live for Christ regardless of the cost, and that means then that we live for Christ without corrupting sin and we live deliberately, not carelessly. We learn habits of holiness, and we learn to break the body from its habits of sinfulness. Well, so our calling is to sacrifice all and live for Christ out of profound gratefulness. But how is that accomplished? Look again at the beginning of verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we notice here two important things. First, we need a radical nonconformity to the cultural values in which we live. In the older translation by J. B. Phillips, he translated verse two in this way: "Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Resist the values that are taught by our culture." You know all of us know what cultural resistors are. Well, they're people who just won't bend to the cultural norms. They're neither intimidated by the values of the culture, nor do they respond to the examples of the wider culture. Let's consider some examples. Our culture, that is present North American values, well, that values the right to do whatever we desire. The word no, well, that's considered an affront. The only acceptable nos are in the cultural and social nos, like environmentalism and racism and sexism and and so forth. But the values of truth, Loyalty, faithfulness, sexual purity, the necessity of love for God and man, well, these things are not even discussed in our wider culture. But here's the biblical command. Don't be conformed to the world. And the verb is a passive one, meaning don't let it be done to you. Don't let the world or the wider culture shape you or create you or give you values. Rather, we are, according to our text, to be renewed in our mind. We, we need a complete transformation in the way in which we think. Now, this verse doesn't tell us how that's done. Well, Paul does tell us about that in countless other places. You know, for instance, in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Romans 8.6, he tells us to set our minds on the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we are to have the mind of Christ. So putting it all together, the transformation of the mind happens as we learn the scripture, as we focus on Christ, as we allow our thinking to be shaped by the inner urging and working of the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. The appalling biblical ignorance, even among Christians, has led many, even Christians, to be completely ignorant of just how countercultural the Bible actually is. Let me suggest just one example. You know, in our culture, we are ceaselessly told, believe in yourself. (laughs) I remember once in a sermon telling my congregation that I didn't believe in myself at all. And that week, I got a letter from a dear woman who thought she would take it upon herself to encourage me. She said I was a gifted speaker and that I had all sorts of good virtues. And she kindly told me to go ahead and start believing in myself. I could with some good self-talk and stop doubting myself and get over my poor self-image. I mean, after all, she said, other people believe in you too. And of course, she was shaped by her culture. She couldn't even imagine a world unlike the one she was living in. The idea of an awareness of our own sin, complete reliance on God's grace... The idea of submission to the will of God and surrender of her own self-will, the the fact that we believe not in ourselves, but, but we believe in God. It's not that she rejected such thinking. It's just that she had never imagined that such things exist. Now, don't be conformed to the world. Be renewed in your thinking, says Paul. And then, from the last part of Romans 12, verse 2, he adds, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the Greek construction for the phrase that you may discern, well, it's a result clause. In other words, the result that comes from the grateful Christian presenting his or her body to God is that in all things, they're able to discern what God wants. Listen, you know, some people when making decisions in life, well, they rely on conscience. Others rely on the appetites of their bodies. And still others are prompted by what their heart believes is right. But the man or woman of God will be prompted by the will of God, a will which is defined in the Scripture, not in culture, or in our desires, or in our passions. You know, Paul calls the will of God that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And he means God has given us the perfect way to live. I wonder how many people go through life settling for second best, even third and fourth best. And when you develop a Christian lifestyle, you can be assured that you'll get the very best out of life, and that's a promise. Listen to the words of David Livingston, and he was talking about being a living sacrifice. He said, away with such a word, such a view, and such a thought. Say rather, it is a privilege, and then he adds, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high and gave himself for us. Well, of course, he's not exactly right, but he's partially right. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but it doesn't feel sacrificial. It's a privilege.
0: John, I thought you could just reinforce a quote that you said in this message. You say, we need a radical non-conformity to the cultural values in which we
1: live. Yeah, Ben, I think that is the great challenge that lies before us. Now, we have to be honest that I guess every generation of Christian has been deeply influenced by the culture in which they lived. I mean, we are people of our times, but we have the living Word of God before us by which we can examine everything— that is around us, and we can allow the Word of God to influence our thinking. No one's ever been perfect at this, but we continually strive for that mindset, which is the mindset of God. And that does mean that we do reject the cultural values in which we live. We're just going to look different than the rest of the world. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for
0: listening today. And remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca.